Go ahead and take your Bible and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're finally coming back to our study of the book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're picking up in verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. I'm going to read the, the, the paragraph here, verses 9 through 12, and then I'll pray and we'll start our study. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Speaking through the Apostle Paul, God says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Father, I pray you would help me be clear as we learn from your word. Help me be faithful to your message. We pray that you would help us receive, understand, and apply these truths to our lives. So we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Growing up, my dad, and particularly my mom, did an amazing job of making sure we were at school on time every day. This was 20 to 30 years ago, so you were allowed to go to school sick, and it was a badge of honor. It, was, it showed dedication that you showed up with a cough and a sniffle. And so for the great majority of my elementary and junior high and high school years, my brother and I had almost perfect attendance. I imagine Cindy too. Going into our senior year of high school, we also had perfect attendance until the day that we crossed the line in a fight at home. Growing up in the house, fighting was an everyday thing between my brother and I. I think my parents figured that since they're identical twins, no one has an advantage, a strong advantage over the other, so let them fight. We weren't violent generally. We didn't generally punch or kick. We, we would wrestle, and we didn't need a good reason. We just wrestled. And eventually, I think my mom gave up trying to stop that. So as long as we weren't making too much noise, as long as nobody started crying or got really hurt, and as long as nothing in the house broke, just let them fight. We broke stuff, too. <laughs> but there were two types of fights. There was the psychological warfare that was pranks and any way you can humiliate someone within reason. And then there was the physical damage that we would inflict. As you get older, you get bigger, you get stronger, so the possibility of damaging the house or each other grows. Uh, I don't remember a lot of our fights, but I know that I went to the doctors once because I took a hit right in the middle of my spine and just my whole body kind of jolted and that's, you felt it for a few days. I know that one of us drew blood with a stapler and with a hole puncher. But the last physical fight I remember happened during our senior year. I have no idea what started it. But it ended with my brother taking his hands off me and then lurching forward and saying, stop, stop, something popped. Something popped. 
And I just assumed, you know, you're making a big deal about this, this will heal very fast. But he knew different. And the pain of what had happened forced him for the first time that year to miss a day of his senior year. He couldn't stand up straight and he couldn't take a deep breath. So he ended up going to the doctor and they determined that he had cracked the lower part of his sternum. That's known as the xiphoid process. It can crack when you do CPR. And it healed, thankfully, by God's grace, it eventually healed. He decided not to go with the full body cast so that it would heal up. And we, I, I was grateful it wasn't anything worse. Thankfully, our fights were generally not very serious. And deep down, we loved each other, we appreciated each other. But that didn't mean my mom and dad enjoyed the fights. Arguments, fights, strife between brothers and sisters is particularly painful for mom and dad. Every parent with multiple kids that are close enough in age, I think, knows that. We wonder why they fight so much. There's a special grief there, and the Bible says God feels the same way. At the end of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul mentions things like degrading words, bitterness, anger, and he connects those sins with grieving the Holy Spirit. In other words, God grieves at the hostility between brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that means we should too. Just like there are fights between brothers and sisters in, every, in most homes, there are going to be arguments between brothers and sisters in the Lord, in every church. Almost all of Paul's letters address some kind of interpersonal problem in the church to which he's writing. It was sinful, but it was common. Once in a while, you do find parents who might say, no, my kids don't fight. They generally get along just fine. And once in a while, we do find a church that might have that same kind of reputation. That is the kind of church that Thessal the church of the Thessalonians was. They were a loving church. We, we paused our study in this letter a couple months ago but I want to start today just with a review, focusing on this aspect of the church. This will be maybe half the time, and then we'll get to the sermon proper. The church in Thessalonica was particularly dear to Paul's heart. He loved them, and one of the dominant characteristics of the church was love. It doesn't mean the church was perfect, doesn't mean there were no issues, but apparently there was no issue, no strife significant enough to lead Paul to write to them about it. He didn't need or feel the need to address it. Go back with me to chapter one. We're going to do our, a quick review just to see this, uh, see their love, see Paul's love for them. Look at how Paul describes this congregation starting in verse two, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verse two, and I'm going to read through the end of verse four. He says, we, that's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul had no doubt. He was confident about their salvation and he was confident about their faith and their hope and he gave thanks for them. Why? Because they were a loving church. He says he remembers their labor of love. In other words, they, they worked hard to love. Verse four says they were loved by God. Just as they had been loved by God in Christ, they loved one another. 
Their love for Christ, their love in Christ was so profound that verse 7 says this church was an example to the other churches in Macedonia. That's the reason that the region where Thessalonica is, that's in modern day Greece. This church was known by love. That love came from God. That's the divine component. But there was also a human component. They had seen God's love lived out. And the human component was Paul himself. He modeled God's love and God's affection for them. Jump down to chapter two. Paul describes his ministry to them. Look at verse eight. Verse eight, just notice how he describes his feeling for them. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And in the rest of the chapter, Paul describes his ministry toward them. He was like a a nursing mother with the tender affection and gentleness. He says he worked hard for them. He exhorted them like a father would with his own children. For Paul, Thessalonica was not just another stop along a mission trip. It had people whom Paul loved. He gave his life for them. He shared the gospel with them and he shared his own life. And that's why it hurt so Paul, hurt Paul so much to have to leave them. He was forced to do it. Otherwise, he might have been killed. You can read about that in Acts 17. He didn't want to go, but he was compelled to go, maybe even by the Thessalonian church. Paul, you need to go. They had to send him away for his own protection. So Paul leaves. He leaves with Timothy, and soon after, he regretfully lets Timothy go, but he says, Timothy, you gotta go back and you gotta get an update on the church. Come back, tell me how they're doing. That was his affection. And when Timothy comes back, what was the report? Look at chapter three now, verse six. Chapter three, verse six, Paul says, but now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So the church had not lost its love and affection for Paul and they hadn't lost it for one another. And again, Paul gives thanks. The church brought him great joy, it brought him great comfort. At the end of chapter three, in thinking about the church's love and endurance, he prays that they would grow and continue in the love of God. Look at verse 11. And we'll wrap up the review with this. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. In other words, I wanna see you in person again. May they, may they unite us again. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In other words, he's saying stay on the path of love. The path of love will end with blameless hearts and a holy standing before the Lord. He knew they were a loving church. He wanted them to keep growing. And that's the heart behind our passage today as we now look at chapter four, verses nine and 10. Paul has just finished 
eight verses, chapter, verses one through eight of chapter four, discussing the vital topic of sexual purity. Sexual, sexual purity is an expression, look at, back up just a second to verse one of chapter four, of walking in holiness. He said, we, we, we taught you how to walk, how to please God. We want you to do so more and more. We want you to walk in sanctification. That's verse three. And one expression of sanctification is sexual purity. Apparently, that was a very pertinent topic for the church, and Paul gives them a very strong reminder. He ends by reminding them about God's judgment against sexual morality. It's a message we need to continue proclaiming today, especially in light of the culture. We want to uphold the standard of God. There is to be one man, one woman. That is the God-ordained sphere for sexual intimacy. But even in that message, which the world will say is unkind, it's hateful, we need to always have love. Paul switches in verse nine to the topic of love, and it's a significant topic, but it doesn't seem to be an area the church is struggling with. Look at verse nine with me again. He says, now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. He uses a different word there, brotherly love. The Greek word is Philadelphia, which today we say Philadelphia, like the city. Philadelphia is a combination of two smaller Greek words. Philos, which means love, affection, desire, friendliness, and then adelphos is brother. So you put those words together and the idea is brotherly love, brotherly affection. The more well-known Greek word for love is agape. It's a synonym. Agape's focus is, tends to be a little more on self-sacrifice. It's, it's an emphasis on, on, on serving others. Philadelphia emphasizes emphasize a little more of the feelings of love. It, it's about the affection or, or the warmth, the, the tenderness. We know that love has to have actions. James says that. First John says that. What, what good is it to say you have love and you do nothing? Love cannot be just a feeling but we can't swing so far away from feelings that they no longer exist. That's not biblical love either. God does not intend us to have cold love or detached love. The picture is tender affection. You see that at the end of Paul's letters, the church is a family and he usually says, greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a symbol of of family, of love. The idea of brotherly love includes an important reminder which is in Christ, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're family. Everyone who has surrendered their life to Christ, everyone who's been born again by the Spirit, everyone who has been adopted by God is a son and a daughter. We're a family, and there's to be love. But when Paul starts talking about love, he doesn't actually give them a command to start. He praises them. He tells them, I know your love, I've seen it, it's evident. This is a commendation Again, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, he says they don't have a need, but then he writes to them about love. That's because he loves them and he's their pastor. He doesn't want to do the bare minimum for the church. He wants to edify them. He wants to encourage them. And looking at Paul's commendation of the Thessalonian church, we find three simple but important reminders about love. These are foundational principles of the Christian life. We all need to be reminded about these things. The first truth is this. Love is part of God's eternal nature. 
Love is part of God's eternal nature. We'll see that in the very next line. Why is this church so loving? Paul says it's because you yourselves have been taught by God. You've been taught by God. Paul uses a word there. Taught by God is actually one word in the Greek. It's an adjective. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. The Greek is theodidaktoi. Theo from God, theos. Um, and then uh, didasko is a verb that means to teach. If you know the word didactic, it's, it's related to teaching. You, you are taught of God. It, it looks like a, a verb here. It, it looks like it's in the perfect tense. You have been taught, but it's an adjective. This is a, an ongoing reality. When someone comes to Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit. And from that day forward, the Spirit of God is in them, teaching them, training them. He who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. So this is an ongoing reality. Those who belong to God are taught of God. They're disciples of Christ. That is a student. You are a learner. The, 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 the divine nature, Peter says in, in, in 2 Peter, has come into us. And so God, through his spirit, is educating us. He's training us. And the result is gonna be love. You're a loving church because God is a loving God. It's his eternal essence. John 3.16, most of you know it, reminds us God loved the world. How? God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that sinners would believe in him and not perish but have eternal life. The dominant characteristic in that verse is the love of God. That's what the Pharisees had forgotten. Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus when he said that. They were all about judgment and condemnation. And he went on to say, the world's already condemned. God is here to save. God is here to find and to heal. And that's Luke 15. You have the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, the prodigal son. It's all about God's heart to receive. First John 4 says, God is love. Jesus said, when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all your might, all your strength. God is a God of love. Love is not an appendix to who he is. It's part of his eternal divine nature and it is then passed to his children in the new birth. You wanna pick a book to read this week if you have nothing else to, to read, uh, not sure where to go, read 1 John. John repeatedly says that if there's love in our hearts, if there's love for the brethren, then we belong to God. That's the evidence. On the other hand, if you love the world or if you hate your brother, you don't really know God. You don't truly know God. Love is evidence that someone belongs to God. It's part of his eternal nature. Even before the world was created, even before mankind, even before the angels were created, God was a God and he is a God of love because he exists eternally as three persons in one essence. That's the biblical teaching of the Trinity. We're not gonna unpack all the mysteries of the Trinity, but you need to understand that part of the, what the Trinity shows us is that God is perfect love within his own essence. That's a distinctly New Testament Trinitarian view. There are cults today teaching that Christ is a created being. There are people who call themselves Christians today who do not believe that God is three persons in one. 
Anyone who believes that cannot really believe that love is part of God's eternal nature because if God does not eternally exist as three in one, then you would have a time in which God's love was only theoretical or possible, but not active. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says in John 17, 24, he says to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Eternally, God is a God of love. And that's why those who truly belong to him, those who are taught by him, will be characterized by love. The second truth we see in Paul's commendation, exhortation is this. Love is part of God's true purpose. Love is part of God's true or final purpose. So it's part of his eternal nature and it's part of his final purpose. At the end of verse nine, when Paul says that the church is being taught by God to love one another, he's not focusing on the content of the instruction. That's true. God told, tells us to love others. But, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, look guys, God says we need to love others. It sounds like that in English, but, but the Greek makes it more clear. Paul is talking about the purpose of the teaching, not just the content. You are being taught of God in order that you would love one another. Love is God's objective. Love is his goal, it's, it's his desire for his children. In our sanctification, in our spiritual growth, the goal is love. Galatians chapter five, James chapter two says the summation of the commands is love, love one another. Christ said that's the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And and speaking neighbor there is is within the church, that's the love that's to be shown. We are to love the world. Galatians, I think it's chapter six says love everyone, but it says particularly the household of God. That's our brother and our sister. To grow as a Christian is to grow in love. All the other attributes, all the the, the rest of the fruit of the spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, these are all expressions of love. Love is the object of the Christian life. And and we're talking about real biblical love. So the love of the world is sin-affirming, self-exalting. But the love of Christ is God-glorifying. It's righteousness exalting and it's self-sacrificing. It's the love exemplified by our Savior who came to give up his life as a ransom for many. He laid down his life for his sheep. He came to rescue rebels. He came to wash the feet of his disciples. That's the love of Christ. And that's what God's after in our lives. He's after love right now as we grow and he's after love for all eternity. Love is the the driving force of spiritual growth and love is, we could say, even the road that leads us to glorification. That's what we saw at the end of chapter three when Paul prayed. He says, I want you to abound in love so that your hearts would be established blameless in holiness before God when Christ comes. So just like love was present eternally before creation, love will be present forever once this this story is complete and we move on to eternity. Love is part of God's final purpose. The third and final reminder we get here in Paul's commendation comes at the beginning of verse 10. Speaking again of the church's love, Paul says emphatically, for that indeed, speaking of love, that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout 
Macedonia. So here's the final reminder. Love is part of God's crucial method or crucial strategy. Love is part of God's crucial method. When Paul references Macedonia there, your mind might be taken back to chapter one. He said, you Thessalonians, your church has become an example to everyone, and speaking of the churches, in Macedonia. But how did that happen? How could a fairly young church have such a big impact in their region? It it, it was their faith, yes, it was their hope. Paul says that, and it was also their love. He doesn't actually say how they're loving each other. We can only imagine. It might be acts of service. It might be monetary needs. But it was visible. It was evident. And it was impactful. This church had an amazing reputation because of its love. That's not by coincidence. That's by design. Love is how God works. Today there are plenty of churches who will tell other churches that they can be famous, they can be impactful in their communities, and they can do so through their music. They can do so because of their building, because of an amazing program for kids and youth, and all those are not bad things in themselves, but we have to make sure that none of those things ever overshadows God's desire and God's design that we be known primarily for our love. That's what the Thessalonian church was known for. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is God's method of working in the world. Most of you know 1 Corinthians 13. This was a church that had lots of gifts, lots of notoriety. It's a famous city. But there were factions. There was division. They were fighting. And in chapter 13, it's not a chapter only on love. It's a chapter sandwiched between 12 and 14, which is about spiritual gifts, serving in the church. But the heart of that, he says, is love. Paul says, I can have all the greatest abilities. I can have all the greatest uh, knowledge and gifts and, and faith. But if I don't have love, it's useless. It's nothing. We can't forget that. Love is crucial. We cannot be effective for God's purposes if we do not have love. And so that's why 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. Love is part of God's eternal nature. It's part of God's final purpose and it's part of God's crucial method. And thinking about these things, the main passage that came to my mind, I'd like you to turn there with me, is John 17. I already mentioned it to you. I want you to see it for yourselves. John chapter 17. This is, we call it the high priestly prayer. It's Christ praying for his disciples that are there, but he's also praying for all who would come to be part of the church. He's praying in the hearing of his disciples, but this is on the night in which he will be betrayed the day before he dies. John chapter 17, we're going to look at the closing words of this prayer starting in verse 20. You're going to hear all three principles. Love is part of who God is. Love is part of what God wants for us and love is how God works. John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for us. He asks, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, speaking of the word, speaking of the truth, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We don't become God in salvation. We partake of the divine nature, as Peter says, but, but we're distinct, but we're entering this loving relationship between Father and Son. Verse 24, he continues, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, I desire that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the eternal love between father and son is, is passed to and expressed through the church of Jesus Christ. Love is part of God's nature. Love is part of how God works. Love is part of God's goal for us. And in thinking about those principles as we wrap up today, I wanted to, to step back from the theology and just remember what Paul is doing in this passage of the Thessalonians. He's praising them. He's commending the church. He's not trying to, to guilt them, even when he gets to the command. It's not a guilt thing. It's a praise. He's commending them because they are, as a church, wonderfully showcasing the heart of God. And so in thinking about that, I wanted to do the same as, as your pastor. I wanted to encourage you and commend you because of all the wonderful examples that I personally get to see and, and hear about, and we as, as elders as well. We're not blind or deaf to the relational difficulties, the problems that happen in our church. We know our church isn't perfect, but it's really easy to focus on those things and lose sight of all the evidences of God's grace in our life. It's very easy to focus on what's deficient and what's frustrating and forget the positive examples of God's mercy. So Paul's heart is to commend. I wanted to commend you guys as a church. Uh, since I was a kid in this church, people have said this is such a loving church. And even unbelievers, they may not know what they mean, but there's a difference. These are people who, who show up, and I'm not just getting coffee and bread. There are people who care about me. You're, you're a loving church that's showcasing the heart of God and people see that. They see it on Sunday mornings and they see it throughout the week. They see it toward one another and they see it toward unbelievers. In the grace of God, I see you worshiping together, eating together, meeting needs together, serving together, crying together, and laughing together. Our kids enjoy each other's company. This is the design of God and you should see it. It pleases God. There's a tremendous joy in God and in me to be a part of it and to be an unworthy recipient of it. God's using us. 
There will be times where you don't see it. There will be times where you don't feel it, but God's working. And be encouraged that he's bringing us together uh, closer to one another and closer to him for the glory of Christ. And we can keep moving forward in that as his body. Let's pray. Father, you are the eternal God of love. The Muslims don't know that. They reject that. Other teachings have you as an aloof, angry God only. Your wrath is real, your judgment is real, but you are God of mercy and love. You came to seek and save that which was lost, and we pray you continue to remind us of your grace and your holiness. Bring to our mind the forgiveness that you have given us so that in remembering how much we've been forgiven, we can continue to love. We thank you that you teach us. We thank you that you've given us your spirit that reminds us the little ways and the big ways that we can serve and love others. You want love in our lives. You're, you're producing that. And remind us as we look back in our life five, ten years ago, help us see the evidences of your love in us and in others. We thank you that you're using this love to reach the world, not in a uh, sentimental way only, but as an, as, as, a, as an avenue, as an open door to speak the truth of Christ. And when we do so, we pray it would be with gentleness, with reverence, and with clarity and with love. Thank you for your grace toward us. And we pray you would give us many more evidences of it in the days to come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.